It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is uh, some of the benefits of being in my position, of being able to define a series, you know, it's sort of fun. You know, I, I can do that. I, and then as I'm going along, I can take turns and pause and slow down and speed up. I can skip over things. I can hang out on things. And you guys just sort of have to put up with it, right? Uh, and it's, it is sort of a, a unique uh, thing for me to be able to go through in, in this. Because I'm covering, you know, a, a period of 60 years in American history, 1914 to 1974. And uh, this is episode 16, and I'm going through something very, very significant in my life on so many fronts. It's hard to describe my life right now, but it's a season of remodel, which would you know, be befitting of the campus. But it's also, you know, it's, it's not just a remodel of a campus, it's a remodel of my life in so many regards, because I feel like I'm at a threshold point where... Something is shifting, like there's the foundation of my life and then there's this new beginning. But what's interesting is typically in a new beginning in my life, which I've had multiple, I can sort of anticipate where God's taking me. In this one, there's been somewhat of a a cloud over where I'm going. It's just more God saying, trust me, Eric. I am setting foundation stones in place and I will not waste what I've done in your life. That would be my summary of this whole season is I'm, I'm one of those guys that sort of likes to see ahead. And people would have called me a visionary. You know, that's not always a compliment, by the way, for those of you that have ever heard that term. You know, usually that means, yeah, the guy that flits from one idea to the next and can't seem to ever land on one. And it's not always a compliment the way some people see it, but it is a gifting in the body of Christ to see what is needed and to begin to progress towards something in a bigger picture. And, to, and that's part of my role in the body. And at the same time, I've, I've had this impairment that God has given me, sort of like I wrestled with God through the night and I came out with this limp. And it's just like my visionary side is not working like it's supposed to. And I have a few people in my life like, so, Eric, uh, you know, where's this going? Not exactly sure, but I'll get back with you on that. And then I go to God and I'm like, so, uh, you know, have some people asking. Uh, He's like, are you sure you're not the one asking, Eric? It's like, well, no, I'm asking on their behalf. (laughs) But where is this going? So it's a unique season for me, and I embrace it. Uh, But this message and the timing of it, there are so many things. Just yesterday, as I I was preparing a different message for today, It'll probably be Monday. It's a really cool one too. Fighting like a wild cat is my is my placeholder title for it. Oh, it's a good one. And yet, as far as I'm concerned, this this may be far better. And I'm just sort of recognizing the year in which I'm hanging out, 1942. And 1942 is not a small year in my life. And you can say, wow, how old are you, Eric? And you know, I was born in 1970, just to give you a heads up on that. So it's like, what's so special about 1942? Well, I'm going to sort of walk you through that because something has happened in my life in just this last uh, bit of time that is very defining for me. And I feel like this is a message that is gonna flow out of that. I, we'll, we'll just sort of experience it together. How about that? So this is part 16, the providence of 42. 
Now, this could really be a cool message on Jackie Robinson. Uh, by the way, that's his number, 42. And he's going to debut in the majors uh, in 1947. Isn't that a little off? Shouldn't he have debuted in 1942 and then that would have been really cool? I almost put a picture of him up there just to sort of throw you guys off. This isn't on Jackie Robinson and breaking the color barrier, even though that would fit with the spiritual lessons from black and white America. I still reserve the right to do a message on that. <clears throat> Uh, let me explain to you what this is. It's a tribute message. For all those who loved my parents, this message is for you. So my mom passed away this past Friday. My dad passed away a year and a half ago now. And after la the last message on Wednesday, you know, the secrets of room 5235, and you'll notice I, I purposely restrained myself from talking about the ones I always talk about. I've talked about my parents many, many times, but I feel like it's about time that I sort of do a, a message that just sort of enunciates the significance of parents, not just mine, yours, the significance of the grace of God at work in our life even before we arrive on the scene. And that's, of course, the story of Genesis 22, when Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac. God, meanwhile, is steering a ram on the other side of the mountain, to arrive at Moriah at the specific time in history where it would either see a gleam in the bush and go a little closer and get its horn caught in it, and it will be stuck and perfectly situated at just the right time in history. And to recognize that our lives are a story of providence. Providence, you'll see the word provide in it. It's a name for God because he is providence, but he is a provider. That's the typical word that we use in modern English. He's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord God provides. And that means he was a provider, he is a provider, and he always will be. Provision. He sees ahead of time. He has vision ahead of time for what we need, and he is supplying. And in 1942, he is going to supply something for my life that will forever alter my storyline. And that's why this is a special thing. Because, I, yeah, I'm in 1942. And so, you know, hey, it's, it's just sitting there. It's low-hanging fruit, and I'm bopping my head into it as I'm walking through the orchard. So here's some pictures of my parents. Uh, I, for whatever reason, they have a lot of pictures when I was going through of dressing up for things. You know, so my dad didn't have any hair on the top of his head, but so he has some uh, painted hair there. So I don't want to mislead you into thinking my dad had a full head of hair. He didn't have a mustache either, so that's quite the introduction picture to you guys. And he didn't have bushy eyebrows like that either. This is more of what he looked like. Uh, and so again, he's getting dressed up for something. I don't know what this is. And so uh, there's another dress-up picture. So I, it, it was funny. I was trying to look through pictures. My parents, I'm not saying that they were bad at picture-taking, but they weren't great. Uh, <laughs> and so much of that time period, and I, I just want to even add, I have a, quite a few pictures in this. They're so bad. The pictures are terrible. And they're the type where you take a whole roll and then you have to go turn it in and then you get them all back. You can't just delete. And so the, most of the pictures we have, I just have to admit, are just like, okay, these are just a lot of bad pictures. Uh, but that's part of the fun of it too. So the year 1942, it's the year of American crisis. Now, if, if you know your World War II history, 
you would understand what would be taking place in the United States at this time. If you heard the last message, you would at least have a hint of what's going on at this time. I will go through it and just sort of catch you up in that, but look at what I'm gonna do on the screen here. The year 1942 is the year of American victory. Something is going to take place in this year. This is a year of agony. This is a year of pins and needles. This is a year where a lot of people thought it was the end. You've lived through maybe a couple of those years too. I don't know. I mean, I've gone through that stage multiple times where it looks like the world's coming to an end. 1942 was one of those years in America where it looked like the world was coming to an end. Hitler was dominant, guys, and he was ruling. The Japanese now joined sides with Hitler. Uh, this is an unstoppable duo. And the American Navy is basically totally depleted in the Pacific because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. I mean, it's completely disabled. And so we are completely vulnerable on our West coastline. We don't have a defense. And the Japanese, everything they're doing is working, just like Hitler. No one can stop the Japanese. No one can stop Hitler. Uh, the world has no answer at this exact juncture. So we are very weakened and we feel like we're about to be swallowed up. And yet, I just stuck that on the screen, massive foreshadow, a bit of a, a spoiler alert to say this is the year of American victory. Of course, if you know American history, like you should, then you understand there's something significant that's about to happen. So here's just a, a little uh, background. December 7th, 1941. I should say that a little different. December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. That's uh, Roosevelt and his famous speech. So that's the Japanese bomb. The, the Japanese are going to bomb Pearl Harbor. And the United States is on edge. A land invasion from the Japanese is considered imminent. It's a weird thought to think of the Japanese actually invading our land, our territory. I mean, just to imagine the West Coast have, I mean, we never saw any black and white pictures of that happening because it never happened. But that was the mental image of what was going to take place. January 1st, 1942 is the United States is going to enter a formal war alliance with Great Britain and the USSR. That's where the, the term the allied forces are going to come from. And February 19th, 1942, we have Executive Order 9066, which is uh, signed. That's going to be uh, probably what's considered one of the great civil, greatest civil rights, uh, human rights, constitutional rights violation in our country's history. Uh, even though if you study all the lynching things and some of the things we've done to Native Americans, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's an arguable thing. But this is 120,000 Japanese are going to be brought into intern camps. And, uh, and one of those camps is right uh, where my mom uh, was born. And so it's literally like you could throw a stone type of uh, a distance, and that's actually where one of the key camps is going to be. April 18th, 1942, the Doolittle Raids. This is going to be the feel-good campaign for the United States to bomb Tokyo and to actually get back and to say to the Japanese that you can't do that to us. And so that is a, a famous moment in history. Whether or not you'd call it a victory, it was a moral victory for Americans to at least feel like we were doing something. April 25th, 1942, the birth of a woman, well, at that time, little girl, uh, named Barbara Jean Obendorf. And that, that lady's rather important in my life. That's, that's my mom. And June 4th, 1942, is going to be the Battle of Midway. 
and that's going to be the turning point in the Pacific. So I'm not going into that at any great detail right now, but one of my favorite storylines is the Battle of Midway. It's a David Goliath story. It is actually on paper impossible that the Americans are gonna win that. I mean, it is truly remarkable, but there was prayer in the United States to see the tide turn against this evil empire. And something is gonna happen that is so remarkable in that, and it's going to actually change the course of the Pacific War. Now, the European War is still you know, looking very dire. August 8th, 1942, this is a story I shared on Wednesday. Six of the eight German saboteurs are executed for their role in Operation Pastorius. So that's you know, the eight that are gonna come over from Germany to blow up uh, and to create uh, havoc and terrorist activity uh, here in the United States. August 15th, 1942, it's the birth of a man, or a little boy at this time, named Winston Reynolds Ludi. Yeah, see, that's, that's another rather important character uh, in my life. And then October 23rd, 1942, the Battle of El Alamein. And that's going to be the turning point in the European theater. All of this is happening in this period of time. And look at where my parents are born. They're born right smack in the middle of this crisis and the turning point of history. And this is, if it's the turning point, not just of American history, of world history is happening right here. And my parents are born right smack in the middle of it. And that's where we're at at this exact juncture in the storyline. See, that's not lost on me. And so I'm taking advantage of that to cherish my parents too. So there's a character named Winston Churchill that I'm gonna call him the providential leader. And he is going to be assigned the task of being prime minister of Great Britain at an hour when no one on earth would ever want the job. I mean, most people would be happy to get that job, but not in May of 1940. May of 1940, when he receives that job, it is literally the darkest hour. And that's why you're going to hear that term used in history, the darkest hour. And I think there's even a movie of Winston Churchill called The Darkest Hour. Most of the military of Great Britain is stuck over in France and surrounded in a place called Dunkirk. And there's no hope to get them out. And there's a national day of prayer that is called in Great Britain. And a supernatural deliverance of those troops. If you ever study that story, it is remarkable. There's a lot of remarkable that is going to happen because you do have a real threat to the history of the church uh, in this time period, and you're going to see the church actually rise up and begin to pray, and you're going to see movement. If you ever read Reese Howell's Intercessor, that whole book is showing, well, I shouldn't say the whole book, the second half of the book is showing the church in Great Britain praying and seeing Hitler turned, seeing the war effort change because of the church praying. Remarkable. So I, I'm going to quote Winston Churchill here. That's why I was introducing it. I, I was looking just for a picture. I'd never actually seen this one. It's this famous portrait of Winston Churchill. So I figured I'd put it up, even though it's not black and white. I know in a, in a series called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America, I'm supposed to use black and white photos. But that was a portrait. Winston Churchill said this. So this is right during 1942, right in this time period we're in. He said, I had now been, it, I had, it had now been, sorry guys, I had now been 28 months at the head of affairs, during which we had sustained an almost unbroken series of military defeats. We had survived the collapse of France and the air attack on Britain. We had not been invaded. We still held Egypt. We were alive and at bay, but that was all. On the other hand, what a cataract of disasters had fallen upon us. Have you ever walked through a season like this, your own 1942? 
I have had multiple 1942s in my life where <clears throat> a cataract of disasters, that's a very interesting way of saying. In other words, I could say, all right, yeah, sure. We didn't, uh, we, we survived the fall of France and yes, we were never invaded on our shores by Germany. Yeah, I, I have to admit those are supernatural things, but wow, we have not had one victory in this entire war effort, 28 months in. That is a long time to go without having a sense of victory. And I don't know if you've ever had a long stretch like that. I remember the feeling that we had in COVID where there was no good news for a long time. In fact, I'm not exactly sure that we've had a lot of good news since then. I, I just think we got used to bad news, maybe. I'm not exactly sure, because I can't necessarily give you a piece of great news that has ever come to us as the church of Jesus Christ to assure us that you know, everything is okay. I think we have entered into a season where we've had to adapt to something similar to this, where it's a lot of heaviness, uh, not a lot of encouragement. And that's precisely what is going on in 1942. Winston Churchill said this. So he has his own list. Now, if you don't understand any of these things, that's fine. But just recognize that all of us could sort of build a list like this. The fiasco of Dakar, the loss of all our desert conquests from the Italians, the tragedy of Greece, the loss of Crete, the unrelieved reverses of the Japanese war, the loss of Hong Kong, the overrunning of the Dutch East Indies, the catastrophe of Singapore, the Japanese conquest of Burma, Auchinleck's defeat in the desert, the surrender of Tobruk, the failure as it was judged at Dieppe. All these were galling links in a chain of misfortune and frustration to which no parallel could be found in our history. That's, and, and Great Britain has a huge history, right? But they have no period of time where they have ever walked through one failure after the other, and it seems like there is no hope. So this is a dark hour, is the concept. Now, I know, you know the darkest hour was 1940, but it hasn't gotten any more bright. I'll just put it that way. Even though they have seen micro-victories, like, for instance, saving their army from destruction by the, the Germans. Yeah, that's a victory, but that doesn't mean they ever pushed back the Germans. The Germans just didn't wipe them out. So it's like, yeah, you have to squint, and you have to say, okay, that's good. I'm really glad that happened, but Lord, do you, do you see our need here? So I've been in many moments where there seems to be no outlet, no avenue of escape and no deliverance that is clear. One of the things that my mind will do is I'll often try and even come up with a scenario of how this could work out. And it's just like, and then I'll rest on that. It's like, okay, well, at least I know that it could work out if this happened and then this one. Even if it's a strangled version of it, and that's a consolation to my soul. God has allowed me to walk into situations where I can't even do that. I have no no idea, and I can't even come up with an idea of how the deliverance could come. And those are not places that we want to be, and yet probably the most powerful moments in my life are found right there, in that 1942. Because 1942 for America is really dark. Now, I don't know that any of us can feel that because we didn't live there. And unless you could sort of recreate the dynamic to be an American in that time. And they're, de they're struggling with a lot. I mean, they're, they're angry. They're, I mean, there's hate uh, for, towards the Japanese, I mean, which is why this internment, which is 
not a healthy thing that we're going to do as a country and the way we're going to treat the Japanese, because these are American citizens. Some of them have been here multiple generations, and they're going to be interned. It's not, not what we'd call a concentration camp, but it wasn't pleasant. And so we're going to do that, but we're going to justify it because we can't trust them. I mean, they have defrauded us. They promised us that they were going to, you know, uh, honor our peace treaty that we had with them. And instead they violated it and not just in a small way. They have literally nullified our naval strength in the Pacific. And this is a, this is a blow that we are feeling as a nation a surprise attack, how dare they? And so the hatred is, is, is risen, which is never healthy for any people. Like for instance, if, you, if you've ever been violated and you're giving way to unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment, it leads to other crimes of the soul. It leads to other vulnerabilities. It leads to a sensitivity to the devil's movement in our life where we are more susceptible to it. And that's what's happening in America right now. We also have fear and anxiety that is not a familiar thing for us. Sort of like Great Britain, they didn't, hadn't dealt with it either because they're an island nation with the strongest navy in the world. No one could attack them. And suddenly they are dealing with it. The Battle of Britain where the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force is flying over and bombing them, they realize they're vulnerable. They've never felt that before in Great Britain. I mean, the invention of an airplane is changing everything. You strap a bomb to an airplane, you can just fly over and just drop it, and they can't do anything but receive the bomb. This is, this is a time period of great tension in Great Britain and America and there's no easy solution uh, for these things. The Battle of El Alamein. I wish it was a better sounding battle title. You know how there's, there's locations in the world where it's like, oh, I love that, that battle. Most people don't say, I love the Battle of El Alamein. It's a sort of a strange sounding battle, and it happens in North Africa. And it's not one that most people are even that interested in, but it's a turning point. And the same thing can happen in our life where it's not always the moment we think. Like Normandy, the Battle of Normandy, Omaha Beach, you know, the Americans hit it. It's like, now yeah, that's a turning point. It is, but the turning point is actually going to happen before that. And the same thing happens in our life. We're waiting for a big thing when in actuality it's sometimes a series of very small things that God is doing that we have to have eyes to see. So I'm going to use a term, before Alamein, because... The Battle of El Alamein, which uh, is going to be in October of 1942, is going to change the course of the war. And from that point forward, everything is going to be different. Up to that point, it's loss, 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 loss. From that point, it's win, 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 win. And yet, when you're going through this and you're before Alamein, and all you've tasted is loss, that's the moment of testing. That's the proving ground for your soul. When defeat is your constant diet and you still can't see the breakthrough. So if I could, I know some of you are in a, in a before Alamein season right now. The challenge with that is it's hard to see that there's going to be a breakthrough, that Alamein you can actually win because it feels so heavy when you walk through a season like that. Paul has been in multiple seasons like that. And here's, you know, when he's talking about his thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, 8, concerning this thorn in the flesh, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And so if, if you can identify with that, those strangulating seasons where you're just holding on for dear life and you're pleading with the Lord to end this season, 
I have been in a very long stretch of transition here, this remodel season, you know, where I'm selling one house, I moved into a rental, now I had to move out of the rental because this house isn't ready, I moved into Leslie's parents' house. There is no dream that I've ever had of being able to move back into Leslie's parents' house. The last time I did it was after one of the greatest crises that I'd ever went through in my life, and we lost everything, and we had to move into her parents' house. So it's interesting that I would be revisiting such an experience in my life, but for very different circumstances, right? It's not like there's that sort of devastation that I had back then, but at the same time, it's an awkward, uncomfortable season that I can't just fast forward to the end of. You ever had one of those? It's like, is there a fast forward button in the kingdom of heaven? Because if there is, I'm pushing it right now. And you can't skip the cross. You know, when God says, here, here's a cross and I need to have you go to uh, Golgotha. It's like, uh, could we fast forward through this? I could just get to the other side, that resurrection life. You have to go through that cross to slay that part of you that is still standing against the agenda of God, that God's like, I need to remove that because I have an agenda th that I want to work through you and I want to showcase my life, but I need death to self for that truly to shine through. So four men that understood the darkness of 42. Well, there's a lot of them, but these just happen to all have a J name, and so I decided I'd stick them all up on the board. Job, uh, he, knew, he knew the darkness of 42, it was not easy being Job, right? And there is a season where it looks like he's forgotten. It's like, excuse me, God, what about me? Joseph, yeah, how about in that prison cell before Alamein, before he's called out of that prison cell, that's a dark time where all he's done is tried to serve God. And that, that crazy, uh, what was, it was the cupbearer uh, that forgot about him? It's like, hey, God, remind the cupbearer. Hey, God, remind the cupbearer. I pled with the Lord three times. I'm sure it was like 300 times. Lord, remind the cupbearer of what I did for him. And yet, no response. Jehoshaphat, surrounded by three armies. It's like, hey, God, I'm just trying to serve you here. Uh, why is it getting harder for me? And Jesus. Gethsemane is a pretty dark place where... It looks like everything has gone dark in the world, and you're just holding on to what the truth is in these situations, and that man side of Jesus is going to feel this. Those final moments before Alamein when you wonder if you can continue. Uh, so I, I've given an illustration before of Leslie. This is a true story, uh, but then I elaborate on it. So there's part of it that isn't true at the very end. But Leslie is at Costco, and she has a little Hudson. Uh, and I think Hudson is still in a, in a, in a car seat. Let's, let's put him at like maybe eight months a year, you know, somewhere in that zone. And so it's a while back. And I'm working at the house. One of our cars is in the shop. And so Leslie has our other, other car. And so there's no car at the house where I'm at. She uh, proceeds to be getting out of the car. And when you have a little baby, the logistics of getting out of the car just shift. And so she sets her purse and her phone and her, her, her keys on the front uh, seat, and she's turning around to do something, and she knocks the door, and it closes, and it's locked. And Hudson's back there going, <laughs> and it's like a 100 and some degrees. And 
So her phone is in there, and Hudson's in there. She needs to somehow get help. I mean, this is not a mother's uh, dream situation. She's going to run into Costco and leave Hudson <laughs> in the car. She's going to run in and like plead for someone, because she has no money, like, could I use your phone? And so they allow her to use the phone. So I get this call, and it's so hurried. It's like, uh, Eric, uh, Hudson's locked in the car. My keys are locked in the car. My phone's in the car. I'm calling from Costco. I need you to come as quickly as possible uh, with a, an extra key. And I'm like, okay. And then she hangs up. And then I'm thinking, I don't have a car. Uh, I don't have an easy way of getting there, and I can't call her. So I have to find the extra keys, which, I mean, where are these extra keys? I'm digging through drawers. And, and I, I remember, I, I think I called someone who had, could come and get me, right? So I found someone, and I, either I borrowed their car. I don't remember how I got there. But I remember the feeling of Leslie having to trust my nature and my character, because as a wife, she made a petition to her bridegroom. And if her bridegroom is rather sluggish and doesn't care very much for her, he might take his time. The problem is it sure does look like I'm taking my time because it's already, it's a 20 minute drive to start with. That's a long time to wait with a baby in the car. But I have to, oh, it's 20, 30 minutes just to get a car, right? In addition to the 20. So how's Leslie doing on that end? And so what, here, here's the part that is manufactured, because Leslie is going to wait. She's going to be standing there by the car, and everything's great, wonderful. She trusted her bridegroom to come. But how do we handle these same situations when we make our petition to our bridegroom? It's like I'm in a situation of need, and we're before Alamein. There's no breakthrough. All we see is the disaster. And we're, we have worst-case scenarios like going through our mind because the enemy specializes in worst-case scenarios. The Japanese are going to invade your shores. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, and Hudson will never be rescued out of this. He will grow up uh, or die, you know, in that car. Whatever it is, it's like an extreme circumstance that the enemy is presenting before you. And there's always that guy that walks out of Costco with a baseball bat, you know, that he just purchased, that is like the bait. It's like, could you come over and rescue my son? Could you just bash in the windshield because my husband's not coming? And when we begin to think, now that didn't happen, by the way, just to clarify, but there's that bait in our own life to take this into our own hands because we don't trust that our bridegroom has actually hurt us and is responding. In 1942, I want you to know that God has supplied a providential means of rescue. He is in control. But America's having a tough time right now, just resting in that. Second Chronicles 20. So this is speaking about Jehoshaphat. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the peoples of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, and Judah is a little diddly squat country. They don't have a lot of resource at this point, And they're surrounded by three armies. And Jehoshaphat feared, well, that makes sense, and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. See, that's a good response. I'm not saying the fear is a good response. I'm saying that even though he was fearful, he is going to seek the Lord. And he's going to call a fast, which is a very odd thing to do in a time of military need, is to have your men fast. 
It's extra protein, extra protein, extra carbs, extra carbs. You know, it's like, get everyone strong. Don't ask them not to eat. And yet, what is the secret in this situation? We need divine intervention. We need God to meet our need. So I'm going to walk through my personal 1942. Now, yes, I was born in 1970. I didn't actually live in 1942. But 1942 is a symbol of something that God walks us through. In fact, I would say you really haven't earned your stripes as a Christian yet until you go through a few 1942s. 1942s are just when you have to trust, when things go black, when things go dark, and you don't know how the victory is going to come. You just are assured that God is a victorious God. So the battle of overwhelming weights, the anxiety is crushing me. And that was very real. And if you go back in this time, this is somewhere in my mid-20s. Okay, it could have been even, you know, upwards around the tw- my, when I was 28. So I'm somewhere, you know, I'm 52 now. And, but anxiety was killing me, guys. I didn't know how to process anxiety. I didn't know how to win and be victorious over anxiety. The battle of insurmountable odds. It seems that someone really doesn't want Leslie and I to succeed. Everything was more difficult. Like the person down the road seemed to not have any challenges compared to what we had. We do this, they do this. They can do it. They don't have any hindrance. We do it, and all hell breaks loose against us. And it was like learning and understanding that there is greater challenge to a Christian who is desirous to carry truth into this world than just the average person on the streets. That we get bonus trial. And that was hard for me because I'm trying to digest this at the time. The battle of financial shortfall. No matter how hard I try, just can't seem to make this operation fiscally work. I'm a math guy. I understand numbers. That's one of my strengths. And no matter what I did, we were always short. It was like, God, uh, you know, I hear all these wonderful stories of provision for all these ministries. I read the word of God and I see extraordinary provision. It's like, why, why do I constantly have sh- shortfall? Why is it that I'm always having to come to you and say, God, I need you to make up the difference? Of course, I didn't see that as a positive. And most of you are like, oh yeah, that's definitely not a positive. That's because you don't want that either, right? And yet this is my 1942. This is what is going to strengthen my life more than anything else are these sorts of tests. The battle of expectations. I don't know how to carry the demands upon me. Lord, this assignment is too big for me. See, at that time, I didn't understand that God makes up the difference. That if he gives me an assignment that's bigger than me, Well, that's because he's doing that on purpose because he wants to do it through me. If he only gave me Eric-sized tasks, this world would never be impacted. He gives me God-sized tasks and then says, Eric, how you doing? And I go, I can't do it. He goes, I know, but I can. Would you allow me to do it through you? I didn't know that at this time. So I'm in my 1942 darkness. You see, if you knew that the Battle of Midway, you know, if you're, say you're in February of 1942 and someone could pass you a note that says in, you know, in this month, uh, you know, the Midway, the Battle of Midway in June is going to turn this way. You're like, oh boy. Uh, and then in, in October, the Battle of El Alamein will turn this way. It's like, oh, what the, well, now that I know that, I can rest in February of 1942. You know, that's Christianity, actually what I just described. We need to know that in June and October of this challenge that we're going through, that God is going to break through. And so right now in your current situation, you can rest. 
Going, oh no, my God will be faithful in June. Yeah, uh, Wade McCluskey is going to turn his plane around and, and discover the, the Japanese fleet, and then we're going to win that. Oh yeah, El Alamein, yeah, it's just up ahead. You've actually been given a promise that God will never leave you, he will never forsake you. He knows your need ahead of time, and he has made provision for it. Even before you even know to ask, even when you don't know even how to pray and what to ask for, even in your pathetic little praying, because you don't fully know the storyline, he does exceeding abundantly beyond it in his answer. He's really good at his job in this. So grace is supplied in the most unexpected package. In the middle of my challenge, I wish I had the year for this. I, I was putting this together pretty quick, guys. So sorry, I didn't do my deep research on what year this was. But I could have been 26, 27, 28 is my guess. You know what the supply is in the middle of my 1942? My parents. That was not even on my radar screen, that my parents would be the supply. Now, I don't know if you see the irony that in the midst of 1942, my parents are born, right? So in my personal 1942, my parents end up becoming the supply of grace to my life. This is what my dad said. So I'm calling that the doodle little raids. That's like the, uh, you know, yeah, America. And then uh, my dad says to me, Eric, I quit my job. I'm coming to help you and Leslie. My dad was a big businessman, always wore a suit, ties. You look at his closet, it was lined with suits. Shoes were always polished. He is going to quit his successful career, and he is going to come and wash Eric and Leslie's feet. And if you said, could you pay him? No. In other words, I'm saying he is going to give up everything just to serve us. At that dark moment in my life, when I didn't know how this was going to work, God supplies from the strangest source. I didn't see this one coming. I, that wasn't in my thoughts. You know, I'm like, okay, God, you could do this. You could have one of those. I always call them sugar daddies. We've never had one for Ellerslie. <laughs> That's just like, you know what? I have a million bucks burning a hole in my pocket, and I'm just looking for a place to give it. And Eric, you came into my mind last night in a dream, and so here I am with a million dollars cash. Never happened. God has supplied for me in ways that are different than that, but are very, very personal and special. So now I, we're still in the midst of 1942. Now God has done something amazing. I haven't described Wade McCluskey's decision at Midway, but it's a pretty extraordinary story, guys, uh, because there's no way we could win Midway. But we have something. It's called the Red Book. We actually have the Japanese code book just like we do spiritually. We actually have the Japanese code book, and the Americans know exactly where they're going to be and when. They know they're attacking. So the one advantage we have is knowledge of their whereabouts. And it's the surprise, they're trying to surprise us, but we know they're trying to surprise us. So we surprise them when they're trying to surprise us. I know, it's confusing, right? And so we go out to attack, and we can't find them. We know they're there, but I mean, the Pacific Ocean's pretty big, and we don't see them. Wade McCluskey is leading uh, a whole bunch of fighters, uh, pilots, uh, planes, and he has to make a tactical decision. He didn't see them, but he knows they're out there. But if he turns around and looks one more time, his entire fleet is going to run out of fuel. 
he turns and he looks and he finds them. Even though they all were risking their life to actually do one more loop, they find him. And that's going to be the turning point in American history, guys. Right there is Wade McCluskey choosing to risk his life to look one more time. Isn't that a great story? So guys, uh, we just had a strange event take place uh, here in the chapel. All the power went out. And so I'm going to pick up where we left off. But it's not lost on any of us here that is sort of like the message itself, 1942, where all the power just sort of went out and everything went dark. And you don't quite know how things are going to work out. And uh, what a time to have it go out, right? When I'm talking about the battle of the fake tour. Uh, on the screen, it says, everything is lost, utter humiliation. We move into Leslie's parents' basement. And I'm not just going to call that a loss. That was a massive loss. The greatest blow I had ever experienced as a man in my life. But we had so much weight on us at that time, and we had so much demand for a tour. We were being invited all over the world to speak, and we couldn't handle it, so we brought in a tour director. And we basically committed to spend every spare, piece, every spare dime we had to see if we could have someone who could carry this weight and help us create an infrastructure for it. Because it's not like we were trained growing up where I went to college to set up tours internationally and to know how to handle all of this and the marketing, the promotion, and all these different things for it. And so, but this man turned out to be, it's a strange story, but it turned out to be a con man. And he set up a tour for us. It was a 16-stop tour is the first one he set up. And, but it was a fake tour. The locations didn't actually exist. And so we spent everything we had and spent money on credit to be able to pay for posters, plane tickets, and all these things for all of this crew. We had an entire concert that would travel. So we had a band with us. And so it was a lot of money. And all it was all paid ahead of time. And then we found out as it was progressing, it's like everyone started canceling. Well, they didn't exist. We, we ended up finding out. Our tour directors, yeah, they canceled. We never had a can, an event cancel ever up to that point. Now suddenly every one of them was canceling. So we looked different into it and started calling up the different events and say, do you know anything about this event? No, never heard of you. And so... We, it was a crisis of crisis. We lost everything, had to lay off every single person in our organization. And uh, I think I had just started paying my dad something, and I had to come up to my dad and say, yeah, I, have, I, I can't even pay you. And of, of course, my dad, with all his graciousness, is like, that's not the reason I'm here. So uh, the battle of pinned hopes. So after losing all of that, we had one event that we put in the schedule and it was a biggie. It was a big uh, event in an opera house in a major city. And it's like a multiple thousand person event. And so it takes a long time to set up an event. So we lost everything, moved in with Leslie's parents, and then uh, we have it all pinned on this. And anytime you pin hopes on something, God has to touch it. I just want you guys to know that because your hopes are supposed to be pinned on Jesus. The event was radically successful as far as impact, spiritual impact, had a huge impact on the city. It was a great event. So the way that we would have made money in that situation is from our book table. And our book table, when you have 2,500 people showing up and the, there's only one book table in the whole venue and that's yours, that's a lot of sales. And we at that time had what most people in the industry would have said was the highest per attendee ratio of you know, uh, people to sale of a product and where it was one-to-one. -one. And so we would sell a massive amount of product. And 
So we did sell a lot of product. And my dad was over all of that. And so that's going to lead to what I'm going to call the Battle of El Alamein. The key decision in front of Wendy's, how is this going to play out? This is a key moment in my life right here. I remember I was sitting in a parking lot with my dad in this city, and we were debriefing. We hadn't talked, and it was the next day. And so we were just talking it through, and uh, I was asking him about the sales of, of the books. How'd that go? He says, oh, it went really well. And he said, yeah, so just to clarify, so-and-so came up to me before it started, and they, they owned all the bookstores in the area, and said that all of these sales are supposed to go through uh, them and into to them. And, and he saw me looking at him like, what? And he says, is that, is, is that not true? I don't know. All the money from the book tables went to this bookstore uh, in, the, in the city. So, I mean, the guy literally had come in and usurped our entire profit from this event. Now, remember, where am I at right now in the storyline? I've lost everything. I'm living in Leslie's parents' uh, basement, which, you know, my dignity, my, I had a, a pastor come up to me and he was really concerned about me because we have a book that's on the bestseller list throughout all of this time. The entire while our book's on the bestseller list, I'm living in Leslie's parents' basement. I never had one day where I felt dignity when I had a bestseller uh, on the, uh, and so a pastor came up to me and he sat me down. He said, Eric, I'm just really concerned that you're going to you know, struggle with pride right now with you know, all your success. Uh, and I you know, put my hand on his shoulder. I go, you know what? That's the one thing I'm not struggling with right now. Praise God. <laughs> I'm struggling with a lot of other things. That's, that's one that I haven't been, but now that you mention it, you know. Uh, so key moment. Still remember my dad when he, when he realized, because that was... It was what he felt was his territory. He, he felt responsible for it. But, oh, what a moment in my life. My dad looks at me and says, Eric, if you go down, then I'm going down with you. And there was something about this moment in my life of recognizing I wasn't alone, that I had a dad who was just there, and he was rock solid at a time when I felt like I had no rock. I did have rock, but I didn't quite understand how that rock worked yet. I was still learning faith. I was still trying to understand this. I had a lot of knowledge, but I didn't have it experientially worked out in my life that God is faithful and true. And I'm going to call that victory, even though, guess what? I was still in the basement. I still had all the challenges, but something is going to shift in that moment. And it's what I'm going to call the provision of 42. You see, we actually have victory now in the midst of the darkness of 42, even if you don't feel it, taste it, you can't crumple it in your hand like a dollar bill, you have it. You have it by faith in Christ Jesus. Is he not true to his word? Is he not faithful? Will he not come through for you? Will he not have a ram in that thicket for you at the very moment you most need it? Say, well, God, I needed it back then. I, I, I could have had that before all this happened. You could have told me not to hire that person as a tour director. Yeah, famous words for all of us. God has walked me through so many of these challenging moments where I have such a confidence that even the things the enemy means to harm me, God turns, and they become good in my life. This story is one of the most important fortifying stories in my life. 
And yet, I, I, if I look at the story and I break it apart in its pieces, I'm going to say, yeah, bad, 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 evil, 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 lie, 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 cheat, 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 cheat. And yet, in my life, it's meant for good. I'm a stronger man because of this. God supplied for me in 42. He supplied my dad and my mom. Second Chronicles 20, 17 through 18, in the midst of Jehoshaphat's 42 God speaks to the entire nation of Judah, and he says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. You see, they still had three armies surrounding them, but they now knew that the victory belonged to the Lord. They didn't need to fight it. They just needed to rest in the confidence that God was in complete control. So in the midst of 1942, God providentially supplied the grace I needed. Isn't that a beautiful statement in the midst of 1942? I mean, you, you saw the list. My parents are both born in the midst of that. God was supplying in the midst of 42 for Eric Ludy, even in those crises or those trials in my life. Before I even was born, God was supplying for my life. This is a, a beautiful, profound thing to me to realize. Winston Churchill says this, the whole aspect of the war was about to be transformed. Isn't that a great uh, quote for your life? The whole aspect of the war was about to be transformed. Henceforward, increasing success, marred hardly by a mishap, was to be our lot. Although the struggle would be long and hard, requiring the most strenuous effort from all, we had reached the top of the pass. And our road to victory was not only sure and certain, but accompanied by constant cheering events. Whew, boy, I'd love that. Many flinch and fail when they are just about to reach the top of the pass. That's when the greatest tests come. It's like, hold on, your bridegroom comes. He's on his way. It's hard to explain why the Lord tarries. It's like, I prayed, God, but why are you taking so long? It's only a 20-minute drive from Windsor to Costco. Well, there's a lot more going on, just like when Daniel is praying and that, that messenger from heaven is going to be delayed. What was it, like 21 days? And then Michael the archangel is going to intervene and break it loose. We don't oftentimes get the backstory of the 21-day delay. We don't understand. We just experience delay. God, have you forgotten me? God has not forgotten you. The moment Leslie called, I was on the move. The moment she called as a bridegroom, I moved into action, and I moved as swiftly as I could. Winston Churchill says this, the battle of El Alamein marked, in fact, the turning of the hinge of fate. It may also be said, before Alamein, we never had a victory. After Alamein, we never had a defeat. Well, that's a pretty cool statement. So we are living before Alamein in many of the circumstances in our life right now. It's a hard stretch, guys. However, you do know that God has promised. So my parents, providential gifts of grace in 42. So I have some pictures. Uh, and so if you're getting this via podcast, you can go to the video. It's on our website. If you go to Daily Thunder, you can dig this up. But there is my dad taking a picture of me when I'm first born on my mother's lap. Here's my brother being born. That's me on the left. Uh, Good-looking little guy there. 
There's my dad. Uh, can you believe we decorated like that back then? Some of the, these pictures are just so bad. I, don't, I have no explanation other than to say, yeah, uh, the, yeah, this is what a lot of pictures look like. And anyone that was around that time, you have a whole bunch of pictures like this too. Look at, look at, there's no positives in this entire picture. I guarantee you my dad would not like that picture, my sister would not like that picture, and I definitely don't like that picture. I still stick it up on the screen because it's funny because of that. Look at that couch. Is that the ugliest couch you have ever seen? I remember that couch vividly. I remember rubbing my face in that couch. So there's my parents. I remember my mom, that coat of my mom. I used to, you know, hug her, and uh, she would hug me. Probably is a better way of describing it. And I would, you know, that, that coat was very cozy. There's my parents in Hawaii. Uh, I have a whole bunch of little travel photos. My I don't have a lot of photos, which is strange. Uh, there's my brother's graduation. Again, terrible picture. I mean, look at my eyes are like closed. But this is the kind of pictures I have to choose from, right? <clears throat> There's another picture. Look at my brother's eyes are closed. So these are the best we have, guys. That's uh, my brother and my dad. That is a classic picture of my dad and my brother, technically. You can see my brother's an artist, and there's a picture of Winston. That's my dad's name. So I'm, my middle name is named after him, and he's named after Winston Churchill. And which, you know, think about it. 1942, who's the hero? Who's the providential hero? And so there's my brother's drawing of my dad with his S on his uh, chest. <clears throat> This is a picture of my mom, his classic mom. Remember how I was describing, well, I guess you guys haven't heard it. I'm at the very end of this, I'm going to add to the podcast the tribute that I read to my mom on Sunday. And my mom was wild, spunky, and I was, I'm very dignified and you know, contained, controlled. She would run through the living room, jump on the couch, and I would walk through the living room and sit on the couch. And my, this is like class of my, I can see my brother right there. He's like, uh, mommy, what are you doing? And she's like, come on, let's do some dancing. I mean, that's exactly what my mom is doing. Even that face is sort of like, and she did that thing. So I, I had to include that one too, classic mom. So here's right when uh, Leslie and I just entered into a relationship. This is most of Leslie's family. You're just not seeing her mom who's taking the picture. So my family and Leslie's family, my parents are right in the middle by me, and there's Leslie on the far left. And there's Leslie in our family photo now. Uh, and so this is, you know, we've been married 28 and a half years. This is probably 30 years ago. So the efforts of a dad to love and to build his boy into a man. My dad um, had a very stern dad, you know, that didn't ex wasn't very expressive, and so he didn't hear the words, I love you. And my dad decided that he was going to give the words, I love you, to me. And so when I was growing up and I was young, he would come in, tuck me into bed at night. Have you ever had a dad tuck you in where he tucks in the sheets really tight and you're just like this? I used to love that. I used to love rolling into that side little area and I would uh, hang out there and he created so tight I could literally sleep in that little uh, spot at the very edge of the mattress. And, but he would always say, I love you. And he would kiss me on the lips every night. And then one day, you know, in public school, I began to realize this wasn't normal. That, to have a dad that said that and then kissed you on the lips. And so I was, I don't know, 11, 12, and my dad came in to kiss me one night, and I pushed him away, and I said, Daddy, don't do that. Uh, I don't want that. And my dad, you have to recognize, he was just doing his best to try and do something that he never had. And he was trying to make up for something that he felt was a void in his life, and that was the affection of a father. 
for him. So he was doing his best, and I stiff-armed him. And if you're a dad, you understand. It's hard knowing how to relate to that age and up. It's like, ah. And so if, if someone pushes, if your child pushes away, say, don't do that. I mean, you don't do it. And it's one of the greatest regrets of my young life is pushing my dad away that night. Because my, it was awkward for my dad. It was awkward for me. But he, he stopped saying, I love you and kissing me. And it's not that I didn't know he loved me. I knew he loved me. But it's like there was something purposeful about that expression each night and now it was awkward and our relationship was based around sports and that's how we talked we talked about sports and really nothing else and so time is going to pass I'm going to come to Christ in a beautiful way and I'm profoundly changed by Jesus and I'm actually going to ask my dad in this very awkward moment when I'm like 22 if he could tell me that he loves me and I still remember we were in a church, we were leaning up against a wall, everyone else is somewhere else, and there's this glass in front of us. I don't remember where we were, I just remember the, the situation. And I said, Daddy, could you, could you tell me that you love me? And oh boy, I mean, being a, a husband now, and if, if your wife ever says, could you say something you know, nice to me or sweet to me, or it, you lock up because you're thinking, okay, if I say something, they're gonna say, well, the only reason you said it is because I asked you. you know, it's like, oh. And so my dad didn't say anything. And I was like, it's okay. I know he loves me. And so I'm trying to talk myself through this. So I'm up in uh, Idaho a few weeks later, and I get a call up in Idaho at my grandparents' house. And it's like, Eric, your your dad's on the phone. Oh, okay. I get pick up the phone, and and this is what my dad says. He says, "Uh, Eric, I love you. And I couldn't answer. All I said was something like, thank you. And then we both awkwardly didn't say anything. And then we're like, oh, oh, okay, 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 bye. <laughs> Great guy conversation there. <laughs> but it was very, very precious to me because I recognized my dad was willing to take risk to get uncomfortable the way his dad didn't know how to. He was like, I am going to do this. Even though, I mean, if you're a dad in a situation like that, you fully understand that is hard stuff. And I, I see it now, you know, very clearly what a gift of grace this was to me. And my dad is going to have sort of this moment in his life. He's going to go on the mission field. He's going to be stirred by Christ, and he's going to realize, see, he was a businessman all growing up, and he traveled a lot, and he wasn't always there for us the way that he knew he should have been. And so he's going to uh, go into the side room in our house and type out something. It's going to take him multiple days, and it's like a page and a half. Not even that long, but it took him a long time to do it. And he's going to invite me into his bedroom, and there's four chairs set up. And he's going to have me sit down. There's a box of Kleenex, a box, a chair for my mom, a chair for a box of Kleenex. I've never seen my dad cry in my life. And he's going to, he says, Eric, I, I typed this out, and I'm going, to, I'm going to read it because I don't want to leave anything out. Eric, my son, I love you. Eric, you are a man. He is going to say things in this that are going to, still to this day, shape who I am. One of the things I've oftentimes said is, I am a strong man for two key reasons. My dad and his words over my life, and my wife and her words over my life. And that's one of my secrets of strength. There's a reason why I have confidence in standing strong for things, is because I had those gifts in my life. This is a provision that has been there for me, and I cherish it. And so as I'm going through this, uh, I, 
I'm, there's a picture of me and my dad. It's funny, I tried to, to find a, a picture of me and my dad. It, there's group pictures, but I don't have just a picture of me and my dad. That's, that's a long time ago uh, for me, and, uh, but very, very precious. And I was the same height as my dad. It really bothers me as a guy when, you, when you're in a picture like that and you look like you're four foot three and he's like seven <laughs> foot tall. So this is something that was uh, shared with me yesterday from Linnea Mockler passed this along, uh, speaking about, you know, she heard that my mom had passed away. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it aught to him? Does he see? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long night dreary, I know my Savior cares. In your 1942, you need to know that too. Your Savior cares. He has made provision for you. And his grace is sufficient in 42. Always. Never has there been an exception to that in all of world history. So I'm going to close with prayer. And then in the podcast and the video version of this, we're going to add on the tribute that I gave to my mom on Sunday. So even for those of you in here, you now need to listen to the podcast or the video to get that. But it's very, very special, uh, very, very meaningful. So to be able to remember my parents and to figure out a way to strategically fit that into a series called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America, you know, it's not easy. So I feel like it's even a gift of grace to me that all of this has happened and I happen to be at 1942 at the time when this is all happening in my life. And just to cherish afresh the fact that God provided a ram in the thicket for me in the form of my parents and their love for me in my darkest hour. Father, your ways are perfect. And I pray that every single one of us hearing this would be assured of that afresh, that we would cherish your ways, which are so much higher than our own. We love you and we trust you, Lord Jesus. Amen. My, my mom was a very, very special woman. So this is a tribute for my beloved mother. Mommy, I remember when you sat me on your lap when I was five and told me of Jesus and his love for me. In the same conversation, you waxed eloquent about a wonderful place called heaven where Jesus lived I was completely transfixed. I'm not sure if I was transfixed more because of my Savior Jesus or because of the really cool place that my Savior lived. No matter, my imagination was on fire. I asked you question after question. Will we eat food in heaven? What kind of food will we eat there? Will Kraft macaroni and cheese be made there? Will I be able to draw there? Will God have number two pencils for me? Maybe I could have a million number two pencils all sharpened and ready to be used. Do you think that's possible? But I'll also need white drawing paper. Will God have white drawing paper? Because I need millions of pieces. Will I have a mansion there? Will it be my own or will I need to share it with Marky? Will you visit me in my mansion? Will I be able to fly like angels fly? If so, do I need wings to fly or could I just fly like Peter Pan? Will I be able to breathe underwater in heaven? If so, could I explore underwater caves in heaven and maybe even spend the night in an underwater cave? Will we be able to have pets up in heaven? I could have a dog with me in my mansion so that I don't get lonely. Do you think animals can talk in heaven? Will there be sports in heaven? If I'm playing a game of football, will God force us to always end the game in a tie? I would really like to win a game and not have it fixed in heaven. You patiently answered all my questions and your passion for Jesus and your passion for heaven was transferred to me. 
Oh, I desperately wanted to go to heaven, but you told me that first I must embrace the adventure God had for me here and that life on this earth is also very special and it prepares us to fully appreciate the beauty, the marvel, and the majesty of the heavenly realms. I remember you taking me to church when I was five. I wanted to know this Jesus of which you spoke so highly. As the preacher preached, I distractedly turned around in the church pew and lo and behold, Jesus was sitting in the pew behind me. He smiled at me with laughter in his eyes. Surprised and not knowing what to do in return, I quickly turned around and hid underneath your arm. Then I whispered in your ear, Jesus is sitting behind us. You turned around and I turned around with you and Jesus wasn't there. Instead, a completely different man was sitting there looking confusedly at us. What happened to Jesus, mommy? I said, he was just there, I mean it. You always believed me that Jesus was there. smiling at me. Not once did you doubt my five-year-old sincerity. You told me, Jesus revealed himself to you, Eric. He wants you to follow him. I gathered every book in the house that had a picture of Jesus on it or in it and took them to bed with me that night. I wanted to be close to him, and I determined that this was the way to do it. I didn't fully understand the Holy Spirit at that time and that Jesus wanted to live inside me, so I piled the books high atop me and around me. And as the story goes, in the middle of the night, when the big pile of books fell from my top bunk into the night and landed on the floor below with a clunkety clunk, 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 you said to Daddy, well, when I guess Jesus fell out of bed. You fanned my passions for Jesus. It was your great desire to see me hunger for him and follow after him. When I was 17 and had forgotten all my childlike faith and fervor and had grown cold in my soul, I remember you sitting across the table. I remember you sitting across the table from me and pleading with me to turn back. When I was 19 and at college and I surrendered my entirety to Jesus afresh, you were there to lead the celebration. When I was 21 and our relationship was still embattled and struggling to work, you patted your lap and said, Eric, get up here on my lap. I said, what? You said, get up here on my lap. I replied, you've got to be kidding. I'm double your size. You said, Eric, I'm still your mother. Up on my lap. I got up on your lap and you laid your, my head on your shoulder and you held me like a baby. You asked for my forgiveness for all the things you did that hurt me, that had fallen short of motherly perfection and that had created a divide between us. I remember sobbing on your shoulder like a little boy. I was held in your arms on your lap and I cried. Our relationship was healed that day. From the start, we were opposites, opposites one from the other. You would scream, hallelujah. I would quietly say, praise the Lord, so that no one could hear it. You would skip through the living room and hop onto the couch. I would walk with dignity, mind you, through the living room and sit down on the couch. You were wild. I was stiff. You were fun. Well, I wanted to be fun. You would give great big hugs. I would give firm handshakes. You would raise your hands in worship and sometimes even dance about. I would stand there stoically, concerned that someone may see you and know that you're my mom. You would love the unlovely, the smelly, the dirty, and the downtrodden. And I would strategically try to avoid them. You liked words, I liked numbers. You liked everything you ate to be fresh and homemade. I, I liked highly processed food that was bagged, boxed, and had sat on the shelf for at least a week. You liked to browse antique stores. Meanwhile, I sat in the car and complained about how long you had been in there. 
You liked musicals, really long ones. I wanted the people to stop singing and just get back to the story. You love Jesus, and hmm, so did I. It was Jesus who brought us together. And our common love for Jesus caused me to allow all those differences between us to melt away. I had spent so much time trying not to be like you that I failed to see how amazing you were. And pretty soon I started to hug people, skip into the living room, hop on the couch, shout hallelujah, and raise my hands to worship Jesus. I started liking words and would even peruse dictionaries in my spare time. And suddenly all those unlovely, smelly, dirty, and downtrodden people in the world grabbed my heart and I actually began loving them. Your zest for life has completely changed my life. Your eagerness to know Jesus has rubbed off on me. Your passion for people, your nonstop singing, and even your love for fresh food and old things, it's all so precious to me. Mommy, you were a one-of-a-kind woman while you were here, and I really, really miss you. But there is one thing you desired more than anything else in the world, and that was to finally be with Jesus face-to-face. It's hard to have you go, but knowing you are in the King's presence eases the grief of my loss. And just think, you could be eating heavenly mac and cheese, flying about like Peter Pan. You could be talking with elephants and lions. You could have an unlimited supply of drawing paper and number two pencils at your disposal. And you could be sitting on the lap of Jesus right now, your head resting on his almighty shoulder, enjoying his strong embrace, right where you always dreamed to be. I love you, Molly. I'm so glad you are finally home. What a great woman. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.